Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me what's in the briefcase! What's in there? Are we going to figure that out on this? I was wondering how quickly... Are we going to solve this mystery once and for all in this podcast? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm down. I think so. All right. Uh, I'm yeah. Austin Hayden, and I am joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We have Ryan. Subfilm fans. And we've got Raymond. Disco. And this week we're going to be talking about a film. It's always so hard to talk about a film that's been talked about to death, but there are endless things that we can uh, discuss. So we're going to bring our own wisecrack, show me the meaning flair to pulp mother effing fiction. All right. I mean, do you need me to say 1994, Quentin Tarantino, John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Harvey Keitel, Uma Thurman, Ving Rhames, Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Walken makes an appearance. I mean... Steve Buscemi, brief cameo. Uh, keep it coming. Tim Roth. Paul, I mean, Paul Calderon. Uh, there we go. Let's just go down the list, okay? Um, it's always tough to talk about a film. I was actually thinking, I actually had a little bit of like ambivalence even going into watching this film for this podcast because it is like perhaps the most talked about film i'm gonna say this i think it is probably the most talked about contemporary film maybe one of the most talked about films ever definitely the most talked about indie film and are there good reasons for it? Absolutely. We can talk about what some of those good reasons are. Um, has the film kind of gone past its sell-by date? Is that something that's possible with the classic of cinema? I don't know. So we're going to we're gonna get into all this stuff. Um, but first, before we do that, we're going to get into some first impressions. Let's start with Raymond. What was it like the first time you watched this film? How many times have you revisited this film? What is your history with Pulp Fiction, maybe even Tarantino? And then what was it like watching it this most recent time uh so the first tarantino movie i saw was actually kill bill volume one and uh it was one of the uh i, I would say probably the movie that kind of sparked the sort of cinephile bug in me um and uh like a lot of burgeoning film buffs uh it didn't take me long to dig into a lot of uh, tarantino's other work and this is a movie that i was aware of from a really young age because my um my hometown's video store when I was a kid, it had the, uh, you know, the iconic Uma Thurman poster hanging oh, right yes. next to the door. And I remember even then not having any clue what this movie was or what it meant, looking at that poster and just knowing, like, that is for adults. That is surely not for me. <laughs> like, that is... Um, and I, uh, I I saw this in in high school uh, along with, you know, Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs when I started digging into his first few films. And my thoughts on it then are pretty much my thoughts on it now. I've probably seen this movie, you know, eight or nine times since then. And I can appreciate it. I understand the the appeal. It has a lot of surface charm, the snappy dialogue and very slick editing. It's all too cool for school. But this movie has always just left me a little bit cold. I've never really been able to connect with it. Yeah, I've, uh, I've never, I've never really... I, I've just never really connected with it. I'm not going to argue against its... I'm not going to argue against its legacy. That would be a fool's errand. Um, you know, this is not only one of the most influential independent films of all time, but one of the most influential movies of all time. You know, it spawned countless knockoffs, and, uh, I mean, it put Miramax into the stratosphere, and, you know, not only did it create a bunch of knockoffs on screen, it created a bunch of, like, mini Miramaxes, you know, like, New Line launched Fine Line, and uh, October Films popped up in the wake of this, which turned into USA, and then turned into Focus Features, like, this movie single-handedly changed the entire film industry, and it had a huge impact on popular culture writ large, but it just doesn't do it for me. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a bad movie, but it, it just... It, it just doesn't do it for me. So I'm, uh, I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, maybe we can chop it up a little bit and, and kind of hopefully zero in on, uh, on what keeps this at arm's length for me. But uh, that's all I've got to say. All right. Ryan? Uh, uh, very interesting. Starting off with a negative review. Awesome. I'm glad that you're here, Raymond. You know, because usually, obviously, most people just have effusive praise for this film. And I'm one of those people. I think that this is... An 11 out of 10, you know, like this is Tarantino on all cylinders. And I and I like his most recent output, but I don't know if he'll ever get back to this 
you know, level of greatness. You know, there's something special about this movie. It's an enigma, and it's hard to really pinpoint why it works so well because it shouldn't on paper because it, it, it's all these disjointed stories. It's ex- totally super long, which I would usually complain about, but in this movie, I never am bored for a second. I'm like like always into what the next scene is. And especially if you've seen it a million times, I mean, I've lost count of how many times I've seen this movie. It's the ultimate like dad movie. I feel like dads love this movie. My, me and my dad have a special bond about Pulp Fiction. Like to me, you know, literally I've, uh, when me and my dad hang out, we'll, we'll spend, we have a 30 minute conversation. We've had 30 times in our lives where we just recount every single scene. We're like, Oh, and remember this scene and then the needle scene. And then, you know, that scene's a classic and that scene's a classic and every scene's a classic. And I, yeah, I think that, that this is a special movie that it, from a special point in time by a really weird special filmmaker at, you know, in his prime, you know, uh, 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 which is great. Like it's, it, it's a, and, and it had every, and he had proved himself with the Reservoir Dogs. And the disjointed time thing, I think, I hope we really explore because I do think that that is the key to it being so effective. Obviously, if you if you play this movie in chronological order, it's a pretty standard, not not really that standard, but it's just kind of uh, uh, the stories are, are just more uh, like what they're based off of, these kind of dime store Pulp Fiction crime things. But the fact that he put them all together in this soup and cut them all up and 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 put each scene where they are in the movie like it would be a, it's a totally different movie if you switch up the scenes i think it's he did a masterful job as a young what 30 early 30s filmmaker anyway sorry i rambled Ram- rambling is what we're here for so this is kind of uh, and it fits so <laughs> and that's tarantino's i was way. gonna say it fits so perfectly <laughs> if we're gonna be talking about tarantino yeah so i haven't seen this film in like 20 years right uh, i mean like full ah. full all the way through um i've you know seen bits of it and i've seen portions of it and there's a quadrillion video essays on it and i've talked about it to death so i feel like i'm much more familiar with the film than i actually am um when i then you get when you experience a film in its entirety right so um and i think that's part of the reason that i was just a little bit kind of like i don't know about going into this freaking film and then talking about it everybody talks about this film and here's the thing the film it's like it's an 11 out of 10 in terms of it being a good film, but at the same time, I kind of get maybe why Raymond doesn't love it, and I see it. Like, I can see both sides here. Does that make sense? Like, a film can be a really good film, and you can be like, yeah, but it just doesn't hit me, right? Like, it, it, I can see that it's magical. I can see that it's transformative, all this other stuff. The first time I saw the film, I just didn't get it. I just was like, oh my god, what did I just encounter? I was like, this is crazy. I was like, is this what a movie, can movies, this is what a movie is? You know, I was like, oh shit, you know, I was a teenager. So I was like, this is insane. So that was the first time that I saw it. And then since then, it's just been talked about to death. And then I think I just bought the Kool-Aid that I was like, oh, it's just super important, right? Like if you enjoy independent cinema, if you enjoy cinema, you just have to accept that it's good. So then more recently, I've been kind of critical, doing my own thinking, revisiting what cinema is, what it can do. And, you know, there are critiques of Tarantino, so I've been taking those critiques seriously um, about character portrayals, use of violence, exploitation, etc., etc. Um, and I'm like, okay, can I take all those things? Now, now, what does that mean when I go and I sit down and I watch a film? And every single time I watch a Tarantino film, I'm like, okay, that was pretty cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like, no matter what, every single time I'm like, fuck. Of I don't know if it's the pacing. I don't know if it's there's a je ne sais quoi maybe that he has in his ability to craft character, dialogue, tension, pace, um, the way that he brings you in that is really just, it is unparalleled in a lot of ways. There are a lot of knockoffs and the influence looms large and it doesn't always live up to what it is that he's doing. He's just got a little bit of a a magic recipe. I don't think he's ever made a bad film. He's made films that I don't like as much. I didn't, I think Hateful Eight is probably my least favorite of the films that he's made, but I don't think it's a bad film. Uh, There's still something really unique um, uh, as a piece of cinema, as a a thing that is a- That's the one of his movies that I would argue is a bad movie. That is a bad movie. Yeah, I, I, I would argue that's, that's just proof that's is. just your, me. Your Not to derail your thought. Right? No, no, yeah, but but I think I think I mean this is really kind of just my point. It's it's uh, 
even when he makes a miss for me, it's still there's something interesting, right? And that's what I'm more curious about. So on this viewing, um, I was seduced by the charm, by the slick coolness, by Samuel L. Jackson, by the religious themes, by the philosophical ideas about fate or just pure chance and uh, divine miracle, the the strange, what the hell is in the briefcase, the absurd, over-the-top violence that seemed to come out of nowhere, the postmodern, self-referential, derivative, pastiche nature of this film. It kind of just fucking works in the end. And you can be as grumpy as you want about it, and I don't know what it is, but Pulp Fiction, I think, still, it has a little something-something. So... Let's start kind of tearing this apart a little bit because I think what is most interesting is we got to figure out why it doesn't quite work for him. Like I feel like I get it, but it still got me in the end. Like it still got me, you know? So why what what can we do? Let's start peeling back this onion, Raymond. Start just saying things about why it doesn't work for you and then maybe maybe Ryan and I well. can Sure. Put some some yeah. Put some words to it. I actually think there's something to what does work for me that helps maybe illuminate some of it, which is um, the casting. Casting's phenomenal. I think that John Travolta and Uma Thurman are wonderful together. You know, no amount of ink has been spared talking about how great their chemistry is in this film. Um, that first sequence really, really works for me. And, uh, you know, the prologue with Tim Roth and um, Amanda Plummer in the diner is just... It's really snappy and electric and, and you're just drawn in from that, you know, that opening title and and everything. Every time I watch this movie during that first 45 minutes or an hour, I'm always thinking to myself like, yeah, this is going to be the time where this movie really clicks for me. And then it it just cuts to, you know, Bruce Willis bitching at his girlfriend for 45 minutes. And then I have to watch two guys clean a car after that. And I'm just... And I'm just out at that point. Although at the at the end, to bring it back, Samuel O. Jackson's final scene opposite Tim Roth is phenomenal. Just a, a brilliant, iconic uh, piece of filmmaking. Uh, there's there's not a whole lot amiss there. But I think the thing that just really gets me with this, and maybe I'm just not a huge fan of anthology films in general, but this movie, this movie kind of reminds me in some ways of. Um, uh, it may be an apt comparison because Miramax was owned by Disney at this point, but back during World War II, when when all the Disney animators were enlisted into the war effort to make propaganda shorts for the military, they didn't have enough manpower on hand to to you know churn out new stories for the theaters, at least not at feature length. So they did essentially anthology films like Make My Music and Melody Time, and all of them are completely disconnected. It's just, you know... A handful of fun shorts that they were able to put together for for 60 or 70 minutes to help keep the lights on over in Burbank. And this movie, in a way, kind of feels like that. It, it, it just it feels like a lot of unfinished ideas in a way. And I think that I, I so enjoy what's happening between John Travolta and Uma Thurman. I'm getting invested in their story. And then I see John Travolta die. And then the stakes are completely gone for me. We maybe talked about this a little bit with Tenet, where it's like, well, you know, it's it's going back and forth in time. Like, I can't really be invested in what's going to happen to this character that I really love, because I know that he dies on the shitter eventually. Like, I'm not concerned that he's going to die in a big shootout at that diner at the end there. Like, you know, even if those, those scenes work on a moment-to-moment basis, I'm kind of out of it stakes-wise. And that's not to imply that Right, but isn't but isn't it because that scene in the diner that's not his storyline, right? That's Jules's story at that point. Sure. And so we're our allegiances are meant to shift in the three different storylines that we get, right? Um, which I just realized that I didn't do a freaking synopsis of this film, and we should probably we should probably <laughs> try we should probably try to freaking encapsulate. I just got so excited to get into it after uh, after our thing, but. Um, but th- there's three different storylines, right? And so this is one of the different storylines, and there's three different protagonists in each of those tellings. And so I get what you're saying, but maybe it's because w- 
what he's trying to do is rather than present an anthology film is he's trying to shift okay you see the world from different angles absurd events happen now let's get the kind of climax of this from from Jules's perspective rather than from Vincent's perspective which is then supposed to kind of suck us into that and now maybe why that leaves you a little cold is because that's like it's it's ideas first and characters second and maybe that's the issue right because it's style maybe over content here is that kind of I, I yeah that that criticism is often leveraged towards tarantino that he's style over substance and i think sometimes it holds water you know maybe in pulp fiction but to i think you're kind of furthering my point which is that i understand that these are multiple storylines and that the the sort of focus or the spotlight is shifting between each of the sequences or, or vignettes um but the thing for me is that i just i can't I can't help but come away from this film feeling as though each of these are kind of unfinished ideas. You know, the middle story was shaved down from Roger Avery's feature Pandemonium Reigned. Like, that that was its own hour and a half long movie that was chopped down into, you know, 40 or 45 minutes to whatever degree it was truncated for this film. Like, the the backbone of it still exists, but it's still just one of those things where I feel like there are a lot of leaps that get made in this movie that teeter on the brink of like my my least favorite thing in movies and screenwriting which is and then this happens and then this happens which is that there is a lot of cause and effect there that you know much of much of the script is plotted out in a very causal way um you know i i like everything in the bruce willis story for the most part until they they just so happen to but into the one store that happens to be run by the guys from Deliverance. Like, it's stuff like that that just... And I know that there may be something he's doing there to contribute to the sense that this entire universe is just bent and, and like, corrupted in some ways. But for the most part, it feels Pulp. like a, you know, pretty... What's that? Yeah, exactly. Pulp. Um yeah. But as soon as, as soon as, like, the gimp gets out of the box, I'm just like, oh my god, this movie's so fucking stupid. And I'm just totally out of it. Um, and that, right, that to right, me is right, one of those things where, like, I, I know, but just to let me put let me put a button on this. I know that this entire movie exists in an elevated reality, so I know it's not too much of a departure. But the rest of the movie feels relatively grounded compared to that sequence where it's just like, and now man dog from box comes out and the and that I think <laughs> is the part of the movie where I'm just completely out of it. It just. It's just it, it's just one of those like like you you uh, kind of mentioned in your opening statement, Austin, uh, or alluded to that this movie is about how things just happen and things kind of collide and that like the existential degree to which we could talk about this is just you know the universe is random and uncaring and unfocused and there there is no narrative structure to it. Maybe that's what he's driving at, but for me, it just it, it just doesn't connect. But. I, I apologize. I'll uh, I'll sit out the next few minutes. No, no, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I uh, I think that a lot of the reasons that you don't like this movie are reasons that I like the movie. Yeah, that's so interesting. Kind of part of it, or or that that make it good. Like uh, uh, um, you you would said it's like kind of an anthology movie that seems like a bunch of disjointed parts that don't that are kind of half baked. I, I to me I. I think that I, cause I hate anthology movies as a genre because I think I like just the collections of short stories, which is like, they should be their own thing. And they, and, and it is the disjointed that they're not connected reason that I don't like it. But to me, this is a great example of it. It, it they are different storylines, but it feels like one whole story. It feels like one story with three stories to it, to me. Um, it feels like a universe like that. Ha and, and, and you had just alluded to something else that, that has this existential, you know, uh, colliding effect of, of the storylines. And I do think that that is kind of what he's going for. That is part of the theme of the movie is is chance, the randomness of life, you know, like that, that they could have gotten shot. And what does that mean? Like, was that a random thing or was it God? You have two different ideologies of that. The guy who thinks it's random gets shot on a toilet at the end. The guy who thinks it's God is presumably ro roaming the earth like Cain and Abel, you know, and uh, and living or a different Kane kind of Fu. monastic yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, Cain from Kung Fu. That's what I meant. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, uh, so I like that about it, and, I, and also I like the fact that it, it uh, the the style of the film is that it's very much like a day in the life of these gangsters. Like, like it's the parts of the the movies you don't usually see. It's them 
talking about cheeseburgers on the way to go uh, uh, kill kill somebody, which isn't usually in the movie. You usually are just get a montage of them going to their hit. They're, they're in and out and you get the action. This is all the parts you don't normally see, which I think is a big part of this film. And also what we should talk about is just the fact that Tarantino, I think his special sauce that you would kind of alluded to Austin is that his intention for movies is he's literally thinking of the audience every step of the way and what an audience wants to feel at every moment. He's, he's taking you on a roller coaster ride. Whereas a lot of filmmakers I think are trying to tell their story, their vanity story. And then, Oh, how do I make this entertaining? He's thinking about entertainment first, which is to me what I love about him and he's, but he's doing it in such a bizarre way with these different kind of seemingly random stories. You know, the the, uh, the him getting shot, in the, Marvin getting shot in the head and stuff, which just comes out of nowhere. Like he knows how to twist your buttons as an audience, and that's why I think his movies are so unique and weird. Yeah, and, there and, is a strange because okay, let's take a let's take a normal hitman sequence, right? Like you get two hitmen, they're gonna go, they've got a job. We're introduced to them in the car. There's probably like ominous music. Maybe they're talking about how like they got a certain amount of time. Um, if they don't get this job done, then Frankie, the boss, is going to come after them. And just like one of them fucked up last time, one of them's the junior and one of them's the senior, right? And they set up this tension and it's like a, um, a super suspenseful car ride over. They get there. It's slick. It's cool. Like that's not any more quote unquote real at all, right? We're still all living in the world of fiction and creation and imagination here. The thing that's kind of interesting is that he adds, in a way, a type of humanity. Not that the other version, that the Hitman version that I just gave that's like the stereotypical one, isn't a type of uh, human experience. Everything within cinema is human, right? It's just um, to what degree of abstraction or what kind of like stylization is it? So he just adds a different type of stylized humanity. And it's the like the absurd part of humanity where people have foot fetishes and love to give foot massages or where people are like, oh, let's t- talk about a fucking burger and like how different countries name this same thing different things and how that's kind of interesting. You're brought into like what? international things just happen in life (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. and so there is there is a type of humanity that is kind of brought into this that is interesting which is weird because people don't really talk about tarantino as being a human filmmaker they talk about the style over uh the substance or the form over the content as though he somehow isn't like thoroughly concerned with humanity. But I think this is the issue. And Ryan, you just kind of like hinted at this. It's because he's always thinking about how can I entice the audience or how can I trick the audience or how can I hold shock, hold them in suspense. And I think it's because he's always somehow thinking, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if people talked like this or Man, when I see this type of really stylized dialogue, I find it really fascinating. Um, wouldn't it be fun to have these hitmen talking about a burger on their way to killing somebody? And it's that juxtaposition of images. And I wonder if there's something that kind of, it's a humanity, it's a type of humanity, but it's just a really sort of absurd humanity. I, I think that certainly humanizes them much to the same degree that uh, the Reservoir Dogs uh, opening scene does where they're talking about Madonna and, you know, um, and I, the the thing I want to push back on a little bit is that I, I agree with you, Austin, that I don't think he gets enough credit for the, the, the warmth and humanity in some of his films and in places where you don't really anticipate it. I think a perfect example from Reservoir Dogs is the relationship between Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth. I, I think that's that's really beautifully nuanced character work that he's doing with them. And you get shades of that in the first segment of this film between Uma Thurman and John Travolta. Obviously, there's a bit more at stake because this is his boss's wife, and if anything happens to her, he's probably going to get killed. But by the time the the third one rolls around they're totally unfazed about having just blown the head off of their friend. Um, you know, and, and like, I know that they're familiar with death, but it is one of those things that I think 
I know it's being played for laughs and, uh, you know, it's shocking and it's fun in its own way. But I think it when does. When are they unfazed? I think they're they're essentially unfazed when, when John Travolta turns around and says to Samuel L. Jackson, he goes, I just shot Marvin in the face. And he's like, you what? Blah, blah, blah. Like Samuel L. Jackson gets upset about it. But the the rest of the movie is not about them, you know, processing having shot Marvin in the face. It's about them cleaning Marvin's blood out of a car before they get into trouble, right? So they're jaded gangsters. No, I understand that. I've I've made, you know, I I've, I've kind of uh, allowed for uh-huh. that in this argument, but what I'm saying is that there is like I I understand that lack of humanity is played for comedic effect, but it is one of those things that I I think undercuts the sincerity of the first sequence because you you get the feeling that he's le- legitimately invested in this woman beyond like any sort of libidinal desire or his own professional like necessity. Yeah, but I was gonna say. Yeah, I was gonna say. Don't you think it's safe. because it's the boss's? It's the boss's girl. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think he. I think he genuinely has a connection with Uma Thurman and that stuff. And maybe I'm just reading into that because the performances are so strong. But I think there's something there beyond what his own self-preservation or you know his maybe crush on her. Like I, it seems like there's real human emotion coming out when he bursts into uh, Lance's house and is yelling like, "Get the fucking shot! What's wrong with you?" Like there, there's urgency, there's stakes, and I think that that is like that is driven as much by his feelings for Mia as it is out of his own sense of self-preservation and i think that ending sequence where everything is just about like well we got to scrub some brains out of this and they're just like making jokes about it and stuff you know i'm not saying that they have to be like weepy about it or you know really like upset with themselves or whatever but like recognize that that does undercut the the humanity that's in the first act of the movie see i would totally disagree with what you said (laughs) i think that he it was it was it was totally uh, self-preservation on his part like like he th- that is the game they're playing in that whole thing is oh shit this is the boss's daughter and if anything happens to her i am fucked like literally i'm going to get thrown off into the glass uh you know off the balcony or whatever like the story of that other like dude tony rocket and Horror. Yeah. yeah tony rocket Horror. so the so the i i do think obviously there's like they're having that whole flirtatious vibe of, of the date but it, but once the the drug thing happens, it's like now it's like they've gone through a car wreck together, and that's the relationship. We've just holy shit! I almost saw I saw my life flash before my eyes because of if you die, I'm dead, and you know we've kind of have this bond now. And to me, that's not like him being, uh, uh, as you guys said, like showing the humanity to where what happens later with Marvin undercuts it. To me, that. You know, this movie is a comedy. This is like a straight up slapstick comedy in in weird ways. Like uh, if you think about it, and and I think the Marvin thing plays into that too. That that basically there you get the very hardened guys that don't give a shit about this guy they just killed, and they're just worried about the car they have to to destroy now. And yeah, they never talk about Marvin again. I think it I, to me, it's not a total shift that bothers me, and especially like what you were talking about with the Gimp scene. Yeah, because once you get to the gimp scene, you have to be like, wait, this movie started so normal, and now here we are. What what is going on? Two and a half hours into this movie, um, and I think that that is a bull, like just Tarantino saying, all right, this is a wild ride, and we're not fucking around. Dude. So okay, this I is think, this, yeah, this is one of the things I wonder. I was trying to kind of like put my finger on it. Like, why did I have all this ambivalence going into this film? Okay, let's let's talk about some Titanic filmmakers for a second. So you've got Spielberg. When James a, Cameron? James Cameron. Yeah, t- literally a Titanic filmmaker. Um, <laughs> but um, chink. Yeah, good one there. Um, but yeah, so you've got you've go. got Spielberg, you've got Coppola, you've got Cameron, you've got, and then I even was thinking about like the the great auteurs of French New Wave, like Truffaut and Godard, and um, we could talk about Italian. Yeah. Okay. So we've got these. Tarantino we've got loves. these names. Names that kind of they stand above their films. But for some reason, a Tarantino film always feels like a Tarantino film, whereas a Spielberg film feels like a a Spielberg film. I feel like I can separate (laughs) – I I, I feel like I can see the craftsmanship of a Spielberg film and I can admire it. But I still feel like I'm given a story first. With Tarantino, I feel like I was brought into – a child's workshop or a man's workshop and what i'm seeing is this person 
more than I'm seeing the story. And I wonder if this makes sense to you and if this might also be one of the reasons why Raymond is kind of like, mm, because what that can do then is it isn't about story first. It isn't about character. It isn't about the emotion on screen. It's more about this is just like a visual play thing. Do you think that kind of, does that make sense? I, I see what you're coming from and I think it, it, it veers maybe perilously close to the style over substance argument. Um, you know, no one's going to deny that Tarantino has a very specific uh, aesthetic sort of, you know, style. Um, and I, I get what you're saying that I remember um, reading an interview with Edgar Wright where he said that the first step of writing any screenplay for him is that he will imagine the trailer that he wants to cut and everything that he wants to do in the trailer, all the cool little moments and all the funny lines, and he will write down all those things, and then he will figure out a story that he can weave through those things. And everybody's process is different. Um, so I, I do understand where you're coming from, and it, it kind of it, it sparked that in my mind, because I can see how, you know, when Tarantino absconded to, uh, to Amsterdam to, to write this movie, it was as much his, like, his travelogue, you know, all the stuff that John Travolta sang at the beginning was stuff that he was excited to discover when he got to Amsterdam. And for a while, this was literally, it was germinating in his head as just a straightforward anthology film. And then to his credit, you know, the, I think the thing that's really revolutionary about this movie, and even to this day, there aren't a lot of anthology films that do this, when he started weaving these characters into each other's stories and creating kind of a macro narrative around it, I, I think that is, you know, that is as much key to this film's success as any of the, uh, the directing flourishes. Like when, if you read, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Down and Dirty Pictures, the Peter Biskind book, they talk about when, when Harvey Weinstein got a copy of the script, um, he, he, he was calling uh, Lawrence Bender essentially every 45 minutes and saying like, oh my God, John Travolta just died. What the fuck? Is he going to come back? And then it's like, or not John Travolta, but you know, the main character just died. And then he would call back 45 minutes later and be like, what the fuck is going on? This person just died, blah, blah, blah. And then he called back 45 minutes after that and was like, we have to make this. Like there is something endemic to this narrative that I, I think is absolutely, you know, 100% it, not 100% because there's some dispute over how much Roger Avery really contributed to this film, but it is absolutely from a singular voice. I think you can say that of all of his movies, with the exception of maybe Reservoir Dogs, considering the fact that City on Fire exists. Um, but it, it, you know, it, like that's the thing that's so vexing about this. And I, I, I mean, I will catch hell for saying this. The chat will probably blow up and tell me I'm an asshole for... For, for being cold on Pulp Fiction when my favorite Tarantino movie is Death Proof. But I think there is, there's something about the project of Death Proof where it's, it, he's making it very obvious that this is a plaything, that this is as much an experiment as it is, like maybe even more so than it is a movie. Whereas this one, this one feels, you know, despite its non-linear narrative and it's it's playing with storytelling conventions it still has like at its heart it has a beginning a middle and an end it just doesn't have them in that order like it's it's a lot more conventional than i, I think a lot of people give it credit for especially when you recognize it as like through the framework of like this started as just an anthology film straight up and down like it started as three ideas that to him i, I mean I, I think there's a tacit admission folded into that that these three movies did not were not able to stand up on their own as independent features like there there wasn't enough meat on the bone for him to turn this into three movies like they, they he had to create his own mini universe in order to let these things play out and i think that's one of the reasons why it always just it it just doesn't do it for me it just it feels like a handful of unfinished thoughts that are it, almost like how napoleon dynamite is just a collection of sketches tied together to make money like they're very very funny and it, and like each individual sketch has its merits, and I enjoy it certainly. But like, I I think that the this this movie for you know for as much as it revolutionized the industry and it did, I think is like a lot more simple at its core than people really give it credit for. Um, I think I I probably completely missed the point of your question. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I mean, no, I get I get what you're saying. I'm trying to say is I'm trying to figure out what it is when I see a Tarantino film. 
when I experience a Tarantino film, I feel like I'm getting more Tarantino and less film. I feel like I'm getting I'm getting a hobbyist uh, expressing a passion. Whereas when I see an Edgar Wright film, when I see uh, an Andrea Arnold film, I'm trying to think of like auteurs that I love. When I see their films, it's not that I separate them from the craftsmanship. Um, it's that I recognize the piece as being first. Whereas when I see a Tarantino film, I feel like he's first. And I don't know if that's just because he's a kind of character that has become larger than a lot of his films. But it does kind of, I don't know, it kind of like taints my interpretation before I go into the film. I'm like, cool, I'm going to go hang out with Quentin for a couple hours. And whatever his, whatever his weird fucking obsession is at the moment, that's what he's going to rant at me about. And he's going to tell me some weird story. But I feel like I'm hanging out with Quentin more than I'm seeing a story or a narrative. And, and I wonder if that creates a strange viewing experience. Cause it's, and I don't know if that's maybe just something that's happened after the fact, too, because he's become like an iconic, legendary type of figure. And, Not necessarily. And I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. Oh, no, I mean, he, he even says in interviews that, like, to your point, when he talks about the soundtracks for his movie, he always says, like, you know, the first thing I do when I write a movie, like, I want to pick out all my favorite records. I, I put together the soundtrack, and I want to do what I want to do. And my idea for a soundtrack is that I want to make a playlist for every fucking person in the world. Like, <laughs> th these movies are, like, by his own admission, as much just, like, a trip through his head as anything. I think, like... That his his talking about the soundtracks in in those terms, like these movies are made for him. Like the these movies are one hundred percent made for him and him first, and not necessarily him alone. But I think if I went up to Quentin Tarantino and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm not too hot on Pulp Fiction," and uh, and he asked me, "Well, what's your favorite movie of mine?" and I said, "Death Proof," he'd tell me to get the fuck out of here because to him, that's his that's the worst he'll he'll ever get. You know, like so. You know, it's different strokes for different folks, and it, and it kind of work, it depends on the idiom that he's working in, perhaps. Like, I love kung fu movies. I love I love Kill Bill. I love Inglorious Bastards. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a masterpiece. Um, I really like Reservoir Dogs. What I'm what I'm not too crazy about is the kind of movie that Pulp Fiction created millions of, and I think I had. I had seen so many of those garbage knockoffs that it kind of inured me to the formula. Uh, like, you know, in this might be getting words, us. Hold on, this might be getting us to the meat of it here. Is it Pulp Fiction, or is it also like, is it impossible to separate the film from what its effects have produced? And so now, when we go back and watch the film, it's kind of like, oh fuck. You know, um, I I can I could see that argument and I've considered that. But the thing is, is that I think Reservoir Dogs is in such a similar vein and I really, really like Reservoir Dogs. So I don't I don't know that like I, that was the first thing that occurred to me because it's like Pulp Fiction is everybody's favorite movie. So, of course, I must be the one who's wrong. Like I, I took <laughs> right, right. this burden on myself. You know, right. I've done the research on myself and my own feelings about this. But, I mean, I really, really like Reservoir Dogs. Jackie Brown is one of my favorite Tarantino movies. And out of those three, that triptych of L.A. crime films, this one is the one that just, it just doesn't hit for me. I, uh, uh, yeah, Austin, the, the thing that you're talking about, the striving, where you're going in and you are getting more Tarantino than movie as you put it to me i i want I, I wish there was more of that in cinema to me that would save movies in a way because you want like, like movie stars quote unquote are going away or whatever so like there's not as many, as many bankable stars and i think that you know you have f folks like like pretty much the only bankable directors nowadays are tarantino christopher nolan uh maybe this uh uh and that's it Wes Anderson, you know. Tarantino and Christopher Nolan are the only two folks who can who can get the budgets that they get to command do a huge what budget. They do. Absolutely, yeah. they and, they're and, in the and, league and, of their own. And, and yeah, and and I love getting a lot of Tarantino. I love seeing these movies filtered through his mind and going in because it's kind of the same thing I want and stuff. I will say though that these early films, Pulp Fiction especially, I uh, uh, when I see. Travolta or Samuel Jackson doing these characters to me they it feels like those are the characters but it's or, or those people are the characters I don't feel Tarantino surging through them like I do in his later movies and I think that that is 
a testament to how much it's like been soaked into pop culture, like his style, his aesthetic of dialogue, just kind of what his movies are like that, that I think that when you get on a set of a Tarantino film now, and he would probably disagree with this, but I feel like people are trying to do a Tarantino thing on a Tarantino movie and it feels Tarantino E and therefore if you kind of, whenever you watch it, like to me, I know you said once upon a time in Hollywood's a masterpiece. And I know a lot of people think like that, but I, felt hardcore vibes of just like every everybody's just reading a Tarantino script and it just feels like a Tarantino script being read by actors as opposed to people embodying these characters like Travolta and Samuel Jackson and stuff and like in this film. These characters so are certainly I, iconic, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that his earlier movies when it was totally fresh, it it works better. And then now I don't know. Uh, I, I commend him for going after different genres and stuff. But uh, it's kind of hit or miss for me. To me, Django Unchained was his last one where I was like, these feel like characters that are exist in, a, in, in an exploitation film that um, – and it's not just like, oh, it feels like somebody trying to – like Woody Allen has that whole thing where everybody in a Woody Allen movie is trying to – it sounds like just Woody Allen talking through their body basically because – you know, and Aaron Sorkin, same way where it's like, all right, you're just an Aaron Sorkin mouthpiece, which I – there's – there's merit to that, but uh, if you're good at it, but I like it when the, when the characters feel real. Yeah. So what do we think? I mean, I guess we kind of talked about why the film is successful. Like, like if we could really nail it down, like why is this film so culturally important? Not like what's good about the film, but why do people gravitate to this film? And it might be for some of the same reasons, but let's talk about this film's impact. Like when this film came on the scene in 1994, why was it like a grenade launched into the cinematic landscape? Like what, what did it do to alter the course of, of cinematic history, so to speak, for better or for worse? What did it specifically do? Um, I mean, if you want to read a whole book about that, like I mentioned it before, Down and Dirty Pictures is a really great book. Um, you know, not only did this movie, like I said, launch a million imitators, it put Miramax on the map in a major way. Uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein, may he burn in hell, always said that Miramax was the, the house that Quentin built. And like I mentioned before, I mean, there were tons of not only Pulp Fiction knockoffs, but there were tons of Miramax knockoffs, whether it was like Fine Line or Sony Pictures Classic. Um, you know, I think MGM launched uh, Samuel Goldwyn in the wake of this, that their, their sort of indie distribution arm. And there was this entire movement of not only like Pulp Fiction knockoffs, but this notion all of a sudden that, you know, a small movie could do big business. And for the better part of like the 90s, at least post 1994, there were a lot of studios who were chasing, you know, throwing small money in the hopes that it would it would attract big money. And I mean, that had this seismic effect on the filmic landscape. I mean, not not only just individual films, but individual filmmakers like I think Paul Thomas Anderson even says that like his career, it, it, like, you know, he could not have gotten Boogie Nights or maybe even Hard Eight made. I think Hard Eight was 1995, and it's unlikely he could have gotten that movie made if it weren't for the success of Pulp Fiction. David O. Russell is another one. Uh, if you read Rebels on the Backlot by Sharon Waxman, they kind of talk about, yeah, it's a really good book. Um, they talk about how the, the effect of this movie sort of rippled out um, in the careers of like, you can see it in the careers of Spike Jones, David O. Russell, Sofia Coppola. Um, you know, just just the notion that these movies could find a home and could find financing, I mean, it it changed the entire game. Like we covered being John Malkovich on this uh, on this film, and or excuse me, on this podcast. I don't think there's any way that that movie could exist in a in a world that Pulp Fiction didn't exist because it was weird and esoteric and another movie that wants to be held at arm's length, um, and it was made by a weird esoteric kind of guy, like the. the I said at the beginning of this and, you know, in Pulp Fiction fashion, we're circling back like you cannot overstate the effect that this movie had like this, this, this movie. I've said it a few times, but it, it, its impact on film culture was fucking seismic. So and without, I think without oversimplifying, if we say the death of of uh, of like um, kind of like new Hollywood comes with the release of Star Wars and Jaws and the blockbusters and, and things like that, you know, kind of like the, the young Hollywood 
directors and things like that, they kind of like go by the wayside once the blockbuster becomes the thing. Does this then allow a space for a sort of new crop of auteurs to it did. emerge? Yeah. Is that kind of the idea? It certainly did. But the problem then, like what happened was, I mean, these movies would have gotten made, Pulp Fiction was made for like $8.3 million. So these movies would have gotten made for less than $10 million at that time. And for a long time, stars would take big pay cuts because they were sick of, you know, watching buildings explode on a green screen or whatever. And they wanted that, that juicy character role to bite into. They wanted the, you know, the awards contender. They, so there were a lot of people who were willing to, you know, quote unquote, slum it in these indies. But then... Once more and more of these became hits in the wake of Pulp Fiction, stars started saying, like, well, why would I take a pay cut? You're going to end up making fucking $200 million on this. I'm only going to have net points. You're going to movie math that away. And so then a movie like Fight Club that realistically should have cost like $22 million ends up costing like $63 million because Brad Pitt needs to get paid seventeen point five. Like... There, there is. So they were too successful. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, th- you can also like chart the the sort of rise and fall of the of the of the nineties indie boom alongside the proliferation of multiplexes. Like when multiplexes first started coming out, and there were twelve screens to fill instead of three. Like, okay, well, we're, we are only going to have two or three big movies each week. So those other nine screens would be allocated to the being John Malkovich's of the world. But then theater owners started realizing, well, if we're not, if we're not pulling a good per screen average on the being John Malkovich's, then we'll just start programming the new fucking Sylvester Stallone movie on nine out of our 12 screens. Indie movies got kind of muscled out. They, they got sloughed off to like, you know, the video market or television. And then once those ancillary markets dried up at, at like, you know, the end of the aughts, essentially, that was kind of the nail in the coffin. Like, obviously, there's still an independent ecosystem. You know, I'm I'm I happen to be a, a lucky flourishing member of it. But it, it, there's just not you you will never have another Quentin Tarantino or another Paul Thomas Anderson who can a become a rock star and b become like rich and famous making making movies that like are tailored. Oh, there will be more of those. Like, no, no. I mean. <laughs> There will there will never be someone who has their career again who can who can go from, you know, a, a, a two million dollar movie with Reservoir Dogs to an eight million dollar movie with Pulp Fiction to eventually a hundred million dollar movie with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now it's like you you're Jordan Volt Roberts. You make a four million dollar movie that does well at Sundance, and then you get hired to make Kong Skull Island. Like there is right. no middle yeah. ground anymore. Or it's just- it, the metric the metrics will change. It'll be how many streams did you get? Okay, so then we're gonna give you a little bit more resources, and now you're gonna get a bigger project. So now you're gonna get a series, and now you're gonna get a mini series, and then and it's gonna be about building platforms now more than because now we don't have the multiplexes as much as we did before that are. Uh, central to the, the the cinematic landscape. Now it's more about you the streaming can still, services. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Kong Skull Island, you can still see that in rare circumstances, like uh, Adam Wingard's career, where he had a pretty a pretty traditional or what would have been considered traditional in the '90s kind of stepping stone, where it was like, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand for your next. After he had done like three no budget movies, then he was able to do four million bucks for uh, the guest, then like twenty million for Blair Witch. I think he did sixty million for Death Note, and then he did you know. Kong versus Godzilla, which I thought was a lot of fun. Like, there will always be notable exceptions, and I think you're right, Austin. Like, Death Note was made for Netflix, so the metrics change, and and there are places like Netflix where you can still kind of nurture talent slowly because they just need, you know, content. They're not really concerned about opening it here or chasing X demographic. Um, but the, it, to... To answer your question in a very long-winded and discursive way, I apologize. Um, no, it's great. The, the the film landscape has experienced several expansions and retractions. You mentioned the sort of uh, the film school brat era. Um, you know, that is probably the closest analog to the Sundance generation. Um, you know, these these folks who were able to come up and make intensely personal movies and, you know, then sort of get absorbed into the studio system without losing what makes them them. Um, but that was at a time where there were far more studios and they were making movies in in uh, far more expansive budget ranges in that middle range. Those middle range movies just largely don't exist anymore. 
Rye, I'll give you the final word, um, of, and then we'll we'll jump into the mailbag here. What do you think? Well, I just wanted to touch on, you know, your question originally was, was why is Pulp Fiction, why was it such a big hit and classic and stuff? And obviously there's a million variables, I think, that come into this movie that all are firing on all cylinders. But one thing for aspiring filmmakers to that I would – this movie has an amazing ending, right? It goes out with a fucking bang. After three hours, almost, two, two hours and 45 minutes, and you still leave the movie after that long of a movie because the last scene is so fucking awesome that you're like, wow, I want to go tell all my friends that they have to go see that movie. And, oh, I forgot. I just was sitting in a chair for three hours. And I think he does that with all of his movies. That's why I'm always just amazed at Once Upon a Time, how, how much people are super fans of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because to me, that movie is boring as shit for two hours and then it has like one of the best awesome uh, ending scenes ever in a movie with where you kill all the Manson gang with a flamethrower and you're on acid with Brad Pitt and there's a dog involved. And then <laughs> boom, you're like, wow, I got to go tell everyone that, that how awesome that movie was. That was so much fun. I had a great time at the movies. And you don't forget that you watched, you know, 30 minutes of, of Brad Pitt driving in his car and feeding his dog in a trailer and stuff. And you're like, uh, uh, and that he is so good at ending his films. And so I think that that the it was the combination of everyone that was classic in Hollywood at the time being involved in Pulp Fiction, the bitchin' soundtrack, the non-linear aspect of the story that was really cool and fresh at the time, and then the kick-ass ending that made you want to go tell all your friends to go watch that movie immediately is the real, like, making it go from a blockbuster to a fucking $500 bazillion mega blockbuster. For, a, for an indie movie. Okay, so then here's the final thing that That's I'll my ask. Theory. Uh, what Tarantino has said that he's only going to make what one more film, right? Uh, he previously yeah, that's, that's a joke too. Yeah, he, no but way. he'll 10? he'll make a he'll make a mini series and he'll do Kill Bill Volume Three and say, well, that one doesn't really count. Like he'll, I'm sure he'll do more than one. I personally, I, I think he should stop. All with of the money I have in the world that he makes more than ten movies. Okay, if, I'm, I'm certain he will. But for my for my money, yeah. I think if he's concerned about having a perfect filmography. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the perfect movie for him to end on. But that's just my two cents. Does he still have gas in the tank is what I wonder. Or Hell yeah. I hope he goes to 20. Yeah. 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 Like his shtick hasn't run out. I disagree 100% with his idea that 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 filmmaking is a young person's game. That, yeah. that old people should just sit it out. That's kind of what he's quoted as saying. Totally disagree. I mean, and the whole Scorsese death of cinema. Killing it. Like tell, he, yeah, he tell George Miller that <laughs> he doesn't like yeah, digital. George Miller. Stuff. Yeah, George Mad Miller. Max come on. Fury Road at eighty years old. Are you shitting me? Like uh, William Freakin made Killer Joe and all and Bug Hell in his eighties yeah. and stuff. Like old people, honestly, to me are the, uh, some of the most edgy filmmakers we have. Paul Verhoeven's about to make a horny nun movie <laughs> in his eighties. Are you shitting me? You know I love like, Verhoeven. Yeah, me too, dude. So, so no, I, I don't think that you should just quit because you think, oh, the new generation needs to take over. There's room for all of us. I want geriatric filmmakers and the Gen Z times Z++ or whatever the fuck we have next to come together. All right, let's wrap up our discussion about Pulp Fiction right there, uh, and let's just quickly run into the mailbag. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So if you are digging our discussion or if you are absolutely hating our takes, then please call us and email us and give us your thoughts. You can call us at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. And you can leave us a voicemail or you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. We're going to look at an email from Jason who had some thoughts slash questions on Nomadland. And this will probably be the only one we get to, but we'll get to more in the next episode as well. So Jason writes, um, I love this podcast and each of you three's respective videos and media careers. My Nomadland thoughts and my ultimate question regard whether Zhao or Malik capture human experiences better. 
While both directors have huge similarities that you all outlined, I think Zhao goes a step further than uh, improvising her scenes and successfully integrates actual documentary elements into her films and as such grounds her films in a specific humanity more than Malick's movies do. Her use of real people and their real stories is even more essential to what I think is her best work yet and my suggestion for a future podcast episode, The Writer. Both Directors, they end up, however, crafting a very spiritual and thoughtful tone to their works. When I think of Tree of Life, I picture the kind of big-picture cosmic imagery paired with dreamlike neighborhood streets from my own childhood. But when I think of the writer in Nomadland, I think a lot more of the protagonist and the people they know and all their interior pains and aspirations. All of Zhao's nature-centric and spiritual elements seem to be in service of a specific human's struggle at the center and makes me think of her movies about being about these characters, learning their places in their worlds and in the world at large. My question is, do you think there's more that can be communicated about human experiences in Malik's recent tone poem-like approach or in Zhao's approach? Is it just a matter of individual perspective taste or are both directors trying to achieve very different things? I, I think I would listen to a podcast from this listener. I, I think they've got a lot of cool thoughts on the subject. Uh, I'll, I'll keep my input brief because I, I love Chloe Zhao and Terrence Malick. And, and despite their aesthetic similarities, I, I do think that our, our listener is hitting on something here that maybe maybe Malick is more interested in humanity and Chloe Zhao is more interested in humans. But Interesting. What do you think, Ryan? <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I was going to say here in that, that, I mean, Malik does a fair amount of improvisation with his yeah. actors. Like a lot of it is just finding the film through hanging out with the actors and character while, while they have a, a there, the best. There was, you know, there was the no around. script for to the wonder, like literally no script. He just, he just shot Javier Bardem wandering around and then he just had him come into the sound booth and read voiceover a few months later. <laughs> like. Yeah, and and but I I will say though that that I get what they're saying in uh, uh, the the emailer in the sense that y you feel the humanity quote unquote more in Chloe's movies because I think that you are kind of getting they're more accessible in a way even though they're they're both very artistic films like just hanging out with those people and the brisker pace I would say than a Terrence Malick film where you can literally hang out watch you know the planet with dinosaurs for 20 minutes in the middle of a movie and move on yeah like he has a very different sensibility in his slow is actually slow whereas chloe's slow is slower than your average marvel movie but it still has a uh accessible pace to me Def definitely uh his his latter work but i would say i think badlands and days of heaven are much more well, that's in, a, in like the chloe yeah, Zhao mode. that's a mainstream yeah. film yeah, yeah badlands totally. is so fucking good yeah, movie rocks. All right, so I guess we're not going to be doing Bellatar's Satan Tango anytime soon. Is that what we're saying? Although I would love to do the. I'm down with slow. I want to do Turin Horse because I just want to talk about that movie every day, all the time. We will see. But no, we will see if Wisecrack lets us do that instead of fucking Army of the Dead or whatever. Okay, and then real quick, the last thing Jason just said, just a fun question: What would it look like if Malik suddenly signed on to direct a Marvel movie like Chloe Zhao just did? What, what, what would the I Malik mean, Marvel what would it, it, what it, it would be like the thin red line right uh, I think what it would look like is a press release stating that uh, due to creative differences Terrence Malik has walked <laughs> <up> <laughs> yeah totally it would never Marvel get made movie. it would cost 500 billion dollars when I saw the trailer that was making the rounds for uh, Phase 4 of Marvel, it was kind of funny. There's this big montage of, like, Marvel stuff, Marvel stuff, Marvel stuff, and then it cuts to Woman on a Horse, and I was like, yeah, that's from the Eternals. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just like a lady on a horse with a sunset behind her. I was like, oh, Chloe, Chloe Zhao got into the mix. You know, that Eternals trailer dropped. I'm a huge Chloe Zhao fan, so I'll probably see it. But it, it is just one of those things that comes back to what I alluded to before. You know, I would I would really love to live in a world where... Chloe Zhao doesn't have the economic pressure to go make a Marvel movie where she can continue to make The Writer and uh, and and Nomadland and and be able to much like Kelly Reichardt, who's uh, one of my favorite filmmakers, you know, be able to carve out her own sort of career that way. But she sought them out, though. Oh, did she now? I don't know that Chloe Zhao like, wouldn't be allowed or able to make those things. It's just that when someone comes dangling the bag in front of you. And says, "Hey, uh, this yeah, is this is generational wealth here and career for the rest of your life, and you can keep doing your stuff. It's kind of hard to be like, you know what? 
I'm I'm going to keep doing yeah. a five, my five million not, dollar budget film. Not everyone is in the <laughs> position of like Edgar Wright to be able to walk away from Ant Man and go make Baby Driver. Exactly. You know? it, it is. Yeah, who who's to say? Like, if it, I I have gone on record as not being a huge fan of superhero movies, but if Marvel showed up at my fucking apartment with a dump truck full of money, I'd figure it Dude, out. Dude, cast me. A Marvel are filming in Sydney for the next five years. Fucking cast me in two fucking seconds. Are you kidding? I'm on the phone with my agents all the time. Like, where's the casting call for the next Marvel film? Sign me the f up, okay? Please. Uh, but speaking of uh, <laughs> recent independent films, I just want to throw out, if you haven't seen I'm Your Woman by Julia Hart, it is kind of the movie that you guys were talking about Pulp Fiction being. It is like the, what happens in a crime movie when the cameras aren't rolling. And I think it's one of the best movies of last year. Just wanted to plug that. But... All right, let's get out of here. Nice. We got to get out of here. Where can people find you on the internet? Ryan. You can find me at Ryan Shorts on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all that jazz and Instagram. Ryan Shorts releasing shit all the time yeah raymond uh i actually have something else to plug this week uh i went over to our friends at when cinephiles attack podcast um and joined them for a discussion of my favorite tarantino movie death proof and that episode just dropped this past monday so if you're interested in hearing more of my thoughts about death proof i state my entire case on their podcast that is uh when cinephiles attack we've had a couple of them over on our show uh, for uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. It was a great conversation. Um, you know, they're they're great folks, friends of the show. So uh, check them out. That's When Cinephiles Attack. Sweet. And yep, just search me, Austin Hayden. I'm out there online. I've got podcasts. I do acting. I write books and all that other madness. Come on, man. Send us out, Ryan. Let the people go home. Goodbye from Los Angeles, California.